Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth coming at you from my closet in North Carolina. Hey. Which is less how's... syllables than Wake Forest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, here we go. <laughs> we called Beth you? out for saying it was less syllables, or no, more syllables. Saying right. Wake Forest was more <laughs> syllables than saying North Carolina. <laughs> Totally not. North Carolina, five <laughs> syllables. Wake Forest, three. Hold <laughs> a lot of information in my brain. Counting syllables isn't one. <laughs> not this present moment. I was trying to say Massachusetts. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so lots of there was lots of stuff flying around that episode. It's all good. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I just had to rescue my husband. Yeah. So um, I'm glad that this is actually happening tonight. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that big of a deal. He decided to ride his bike to work this evening um, to just get some things done because he has a big presentation in the morning. And about three miles into the almost eight-mile bike ride, his pedal fell off. <laughs> so he had to call me, and I had to go rescue him <laughs> real quick. But so, but everything's good. How about yeah, you? Well, he shouldn't ride his bike at nighttime. No, I know. Try to tell him in the dark. I hope you wore a white shirt. I don't even remember. Gray shirt, I think he had on. Mm. Listen to True a podcast. Crime. <laughs> Listen to Crimes and Closets on his headphones. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's not even safe. Can't listen to headphones. Don't ride your back at night. Nope. Told you so. Told you so. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad he's rescued and home safe and we can record. And Yeah. How's things going for you? Things are good. We're gearing up to homeschool, virtual learn in the next couple of weeks. So I set my dining room up with a little table and so I don't have to bounce like a ping pong ball between all three of my kids while they're trying to educate themselves via computer. Yeah. 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 Same. We're going virtual too. We got that notification like last week or something like that. So I know. I mean, you know. We're all in this together. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to a neighbor too this evening about how um, there's like, I feel like states, or she even said this, she felt like there were states that were slightly behind us in these calls. And I was thinking the same thing when I was on social media earlier today that I saw someone asking about mask recommendations for their children in school. And this person lives in Wisconsin. And in my head, I'm thinking... Y'all ain't going to school. Numbers are about the same as ours. You oh, just yeah. haven't gotten the notice yet. <laughs> so in my hometown in West Virginia, they are indeed going back to school, but they have like no cases. Yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. Nobody visits there, really. Yeah. yeah. So they've been able to keep it out. Right. 
Yeah. And well, allegedly they are going back. So. Well, I hope they mm. stick with it, but I definitely think there's some places that are not going to go back. <laughs> like 90% of all of the other places yeah. have not heard yet. <laughs> yeah. they wouldn't be going back until, you know, September or something like that. So they just haven't gotten to that point. It wasn't an imminent decision yet. Mm-hmm. So. They haven't really had to think about the logistics. I feel like, um, I mean, I agree with the whole mask wearing thing. I really do. But if you have kids, especially I have a five and six year old and them wearing masks in school just basically ensures that they are going to touch their face mm-hmm. 300 times a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to send your kid to school in a Spider-Man mask and he's going to come home in a SpongeBob mask and be like, yeah, we trade. Yeah. I saw that <laughs> meme earlier this week and I thought, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. <laughs> Mine would sure. absolutely do that. So, you know. Your mask is so cool. Here, you want it? Yeah. <laughs> Let me lick it real quick. Yeah. Yeah, lick it. <laughs> Give it right back. Just borrow it for a second. Oh. oh did I tell you I had COVID? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Stop. Stop with the nightmares. <sighs> Anyways. Okay. You ready for the – you ready for true crime instead of being having nightmares about COVID? <laughs> yes, let's. Let's go in yeah. the closet. <laughs> yeah, I prefer, prefer um, crime over COVID. My mic, I'm sorry, my mic is like falling down and I feel like it's going to make a really loud noise if I fix it, but I need to fix it. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to talk into it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Anyways, okay. So I got something for you. Give it to me. All right. This is the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Have you oh. heard of them? No, Fort Worth is in Texas. Yes, it is Texas. Oh, you in these Texas cases? Yeah, we do. We we have. I I guess has it been me every time? I guess it has, huh? Sugarland, this one. No, Darlene was from Texas. Oh, Darlene, yeah. Okay, just a Texas. <laughs> we are a true crime podcast based in Texas. <laughs> Everyone, just, so you know. No, just kidding. Okay, but this one is Texas again. Um, it's a missing persons case from Fort Worth, Texas. So let's get a little bit of background on the three victims because it is the missing trio. We have Mary Rachel Trelika, if I'm saying that correctly. Well, that's pretty. And it is. It's um, it's a different last name. Formerly Arnold. Her last name was Arnold before she was married. Um, but she was a 17-year-old high school student at Southwest High School who went by her middle name, Rachel. She was married, which I guess in 1974, because that's when this case was, wasn't too uncommon. But clearly when I first read it, I thought it was really weird to have a married 17-year-old high school student. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. And she was married to Thomas Trelika, but she called him Tommy. They had been married for only six months. Tommy was a 21-year-old who had already been divorced and had a two-year-old child. What? 21 divorced with a child? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. In the 70s. In the 70s. Got it. Before my time. This was before my time. Tommy and Rachel. Tommy and Rachel. And this is an interesting case because two of the girls go by their middle names and so when I was researching it, like some articles would have the first names and some would have the middle names and I just got all sorts of confused. And Oh, man. Anyway, and they're not similar names, but they both have R's for their middle names. And so then both of them are going by R names. And I was like, which one's which? Anyway, 
So hopefully y'all can follow me when I'm discussing this. <laughs> so names and, mess up crime stories. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> so we've got Rachel. This is Mary Rachel, and we talk, call her Rachel. Another interesting fact was that before Tommy had married Rachel, he had been engaged to Rachel's sister, Deborah. Okay. Who was two, old, two years older than her. Tommy gets it around. Went, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, he's married, then engaged to Deborah, break up, engaged, married to Rachel, and has a two-year-old. It's reported, though, that Deborah's engagement with him wasn't really an engagement and it didn't last long. She has also said that there were no issues between her and her sister, like about the, you know, kind of love triangle, <laughs> not love triangle. They didn't have any issues about it because it, according to her, it was just Because nothing. it would it implicate her in the disappearance. Well, yes, it would implicate her in the disappearance. <laughs> yes. So she says it meant nothing, that relationship. But... Right before Rachel disappeared, she had Rachel had invited Deborah to live with her and Tommy because she had just broken up with her boyfriend. And Deborah was actually still living with Rachel and Tommy when Rachel disappeared. So it's a little meh about that. Mm. Rachel also had a younger brother named Rusty who was around 11 at the time. Then there's victim number two, who was Lisa Renee Wilson. She's 14 years old, and she also went by her middle name, so we call her Renee. She was spending the weekend with her grandparents. Rachel and Renee's families were very close, and they had known each other their whole lives. So Renee lived close. Her grandparents, I guess, lived close by to where Rachel's lived. Um, Renee had a 15-year-old boyfriend named Terry who lived across the street. Then there is Julie Ann Mosley. Julie goes by Julie, so we don't have to worry about her. She <laughs> was nine years old, and she was Terry's youngest sister. So Terry is Renee's boyfriend. Got it. Julie is, you know, Terry's youngest sister. And they also had another sister, Janet, who was 11, but she isn't one of the missing people, but just information. It's an interesting range of ages, nine 14 and 17. Right. Yes. And I have heard um, other other people report on this. And that was like one of the biggest curious things. Like why were all three of these people hanging out together with these different age ranges? But it kind of makes sense. You've got close family friends and then the sister of a boyfriend. So it's not unusual, I guess. Okay. Especially, I think, maybe during that time. I mean, maybe now it would be weird for some 17-year-old to be hanging out with a 9-year-old. But, I don't know, in the 70s, I feel like things were just different. People just, I don't know, hung out together more. I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so the 17-year-old would be babysitting the 9-year-old. Well, yes. That yeah. would make more sense to me. Yeah. No, true. True. So on December 23rd, 1974, Rachel decided that she wanted to go Christmas shopping. So she had asked her sister to come along, but Deborah didn't feel like doing it that day. So she went over to Renee's and asked her. Julie and Janet had been hanging out with Renee that day. And Rachel had asked, Rachel and Renee had asked Janet, because Janet was 11, still not much older than Julie, but they had asked her if she wanted to come along, but she just wanted to stay home and play with her friends. So Julie decided that she wanted to go because she just didn't want to be home alone. She didn't have any friends to hang out with, and 
she thought, oh, it would be cool to hang out with these older girls. So the girls probably didn't really want to take the little nine-year-olds with them. So they told her she needed to go get her mother's permission. And I guess based on what they knew of her mother, they just assumed that mom was going to say no, that she couldn't come. But Julie called her mom at work. And at first, mom did say no because Julie didn't have any money to go shopping. And Julie just continued to whine that she didn't have anybody to hang out with. And I really want to go shopping So mom gave in and said that as long as she was home before six, she could go and shopping with the girls. And this didn't seem like it was going to be too much of a problem because Renee had wanted to be back by four o'clock because she had a Christmas party that she was going to with Terry. And Terry had just surprised Renee with a promise ring that morning. And Renee, yes, Renee really wanted to have enough time to get all dolled up for the party so she could show off her new ring. Oh, to be young, young love. And in love. <laughs> do you remember promise rings? I yes, I do remember promise ring. I may have had a couple. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I may still have them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure if they exist anymore or if that's mm. a thing at all. I, don't, I haven't heard of them in a while. So. No, me neither. And that's a good point. Yeah. So apparently the girls had asked Terry to come with them, but he had plans to hang out with a friend who was having surgery the next day. So he didn't go. So the three of the girls, Rachel, 17, Renee, 14, and Julie, 9, set out around noon in Rachel's 1972 Oldsmobile. She, they went to the Seminary South Shopping Center, which is about 10 minutes from where they lived. However... They made a stop at the Army-Navy store in Fort Worth to pick up a pair of jeans that one of them had had on layaway. And then once they did that, they moved on to the mall. Renee had been adamant about getting home by 4 because she was going to that Christmas party. But 4 p.m. came and went. And then 6 p.m. came and went, which was when Julie was supposed to be home. And the family started getting worried. Rachel's dad, Richard... And some neighbors took the 10-minute drive to the mall, and there they found Rachel's car parked in the upper level of the Sears parking lot. They noticed a single Christmas present <clears throat> excuse me, in the car, which apparently was a gift for Rachel's two-year-old stepson. Some other accounts say that there were packages that they had brought back to the car throughout the day, but, I mean, really, there's no way of us knowing what they were, but there, was a, there were some gifts in the car. They waited there for a bit, thinking that possibly the girls would be coming out to the car soon. And then, but time came and went, and there was no sign of them. So they decided, as the mall was closing, that they would go back in and look in stores in the mall and just kind of ask questions. But still, nope, nothing. The girls were not there. The Fort Worth Police Department were notified that evening, and they quickly turned it over to the Youth Division of of the Missing Persons Bureau. And initially, the police believed that they were runaways, but the family never, never, ever believed that to be true for two huge reasons. One, Renee was so stinking excited about her promise ring and to go to this Christmas party that night. And the second was, what nine-year-old kid is going to run away two days before Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Also, what 17-year-old kid is going to run away with a nine-year-old? Well, yes. That like, that's not your chosen, um, you know, ride or die there. Right. <laughs> yes. 
Like, had it been her and her sister or her and Renee, you know, just the two of them. But no, this, there's a nine-year-old kid. I mean, we both have nine-year-old kids. We know that knowing they're going to get presents in two days, they ain't going nowhere. That's right. <laughs> be like, I could hate it at home. I get those presents and then I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I pack my bag with all my loot. Right. And bolt. <laughs> so. And also, why would they invite the boyfriend and the sister if they had planned to run away? Like they had invited all like or tried to get all these different people to come with them. So if that was their plan to run away all along, why would they try and ask all these different people to come? Yeah, that's sufficiently debunked. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. So Renee's dad, Richard, and a neighbor apparently climbed onto the roof of a nearby building with shotguns and watched Rachel's car all night long. Oh, my. That sounds real Texas. Right. right. (laughs) You know, just in case someone would come back to that, to to the car at some point. I mean, that it's some serious dedication to me. Like, I know most dads would do anything to find their child, but – this is, it was honestly a smart move because somebody had taken them and came back to the car to like get rid of evidence or whatever. I mean, it's smart to watch it. I feel like maybe I even guess. police at some point would stake out a car. Sure. Uh, anyway, but again, nothing came of that a little personal stakeout. But the day after their disappearance, Tommy received a letter in the mail. The note read, and I'm quoting, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had to get away. We're going to Houston, which, side note, that's about four hours away. See you in about a week. The car is in Sears' upper parking lot. Love, Rachel. So. That's weird. Uh, yeah, right? And he got it the next day? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, I mean, the mail is not super fast. No, exactly. So you think that this must have to, it must have been mailed beforehand or just stuck in the mailbox, maybe. Yeah. So a few interesting things about the letter. The letter was written in ink, but the envelope was written in pencil. The letter was written on a sheet of paper that was way too big for the envelope. It's kind of wider than it. And it was addressed to Thomas A. Trelika instead of Tommy, which is what Rachel actually called him. Hmm. Rachel was written in the upper left-hand corner of the envelope, and it appeared to be initially misspelled with the L in her name was written as like a lowercase. So if you think of cursive and how like an E is formed and an L, they kind of are the same, but clearly Mm -hmm. there's, you know, an E is smaller. So it looked like it was written as a lowercase E. At first, and then somebody had gone back over it to make it a taller L. So almost like the end of Renee, but Hmm. it was Rachel's name. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what I thought of when I heard that, like that there was – because Rachel would have had an E-L at the end. Instead, this said E-E, but then they changed it to an obvious L. The postmark did not contain a city, only a blurred zip code that appeared to be 76083. However, the three appeared to be either backward or a partial eight. They're not really sure. Like maybe it was, um, they said something about applied by a hand-loaded stamp. 
I don't even know what that means. I should have looked it up and I, and I dropped the ball on that. Hmm. But it was written several different times and I wrote it down and I forgot to go back and check. But basically the three just, it didn't seem right. It was either backwards or a, a half of an eight. So it was assumed that the zip code was meant to be the, be either end in uh, 76038, which comes from Eliasville near Throckmorton, Texas, or 76088, which comes from Weatherford, Texas. So these are d- two different cities that they could have been coming from, but that's just what they assumed. It was one of the two. And then during the 1970s and 80s, handwriting experts across the nation examined the letter, including the FBI, who examined it three times, but each time the results came back inconclusive. So they couldn't even really even say that it was Rachel that wrote it. And But they couldn't say it wasn't either? No. No, mm. they couldn't. They just it just it was inconclusive all around. So the families never gave up and would continue looking for them on their own and they would hand out flyers and keep the newspapers engaged and so then leads started coming in and they actually didn't even really believe that that was Rachel's handwriting the families themselves that had written it. So as they started to look into this leads that came in were let's see a clerk came forward around the time of the girl's disappearance and said that a woman told her that she had seen the girls at the mall that day the woman reported that she saw three girls being forced into a yellow truck near the grocery store at the mall the truck was described to have lights on top of it and but this witness however could never be located by police and the story could never be verified so it was like story like hearsay some lady said somebody told her that this happened oh so first of all a grocery store in a mall well it was near it so it wasn't necessarily in the mall it was close by to the mall. oh i was gonna say score you're right (laughs) one stop (laughs) shopping right there somebody think of that (laughs) that is great but yeah no this was nearby the mall Um, They also checked with a ticket agent at the local bus station who claimed that three girls had asked about fares to Houston and other destinations that morning. But the police said they weren't sure the information was reliable that they had gotten. So that kind of just fizzled out, too. In early 1975, so this was in December of 1974, and now so in 75, a young man came forward to claim that he saw the girls in a record department of the mall. And he claimed another person was with them that had spoken to Rachel briefly, but didn't, but that was it. I think he was just bringing up that there was somebody in the mall that he had seen talking to Rachel, but Um, there's a girl. We don't know. Nope. It said another Hmm. person. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Then the family eventually got tired of the police and they hired a private investigator because they just kind of felt like these leads were coming in, but nothing was really coming of it. And the police weren't really looking into it as well as they should, because from the beginning they thought these girls just ran away. And so they kind of just bluffed it off. That family is like, we do our own stakeouts. We do our own investigations. (laughs) Yeah. Right. For real. (laughs) This family really gets into it as you will find out. Oh, (laughs) nice. Um, So they find this guy who worked at the mall who this the once they hired the f- private investigator named John Swaim he found a guy who worked at the mall who was making obscene phone calls to young women in the area but nothing came of that 
1975, in April of 1975, a tip came in that the girls' remains were in Newport, Lavaca, which is about five hours south of Fort Worth. And Swaim, which is the private investigator, took about 100 volunteers there and after the tip was called in and searched all the areas under bridges, but no trace was found of the trio. So... Whoever called this tip in, it just, there was nothing. They kept getting all these leads. I find this in a lot of these cases where all these tips come in and then it turns out to be nothing. Another tip in March of 1976 came in when a psychic called one of the families and told them that the girls could be found near an oil well. And for some unknown reasons, they searched in a small community of Rising Star, but nothing was ever found. So they just picked an oil well that was near where they lived and decided to search this because of some psychic, but there was really no other than her saying that no reason for them to search this. Mm. And again, nothing. Oh, the psychics. So, yeah. Psychics. John Swaim, the private investigator died of a drug overdose in 1979 and his oh, death gosh. was yeah, subsequently ruled a suicide but upon his death, he ordered that all of the files on this case be destroyed. And they were. So, by who? By whoever works for him or by who, like, whoever carried out his will because huh. that's what he requested. No one knows why. Why did they all have to be destroyed? Like, what? Did he find something that he wasn't telling? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But he kills himself and says upon his death. All of these files should be destroyed. And they were. Oh, no. Very strange. Sketch. Yes. Years after the disappearance in 1981, a man said he'd been in the parking lot that day and he'd seen a man forcing a girl into a van. And the man in the van told... (laughs) This is like rhyming. I feel like I'm Dr. Seuss. The man in the van. The man in the van told him that it was a family dispute and to stay away out of it. So this guy saw this girl being forced in, tried to intervene, and that guy was like, nope, sorry, family dispute, leave us alone. And he's like, okay, fine. Get the license plate. Right, something. I mean, that was 81. Come on, like, things had been getting a little bit better by then. Like, people had to be thinking of stuff. Like, yes, yeah. get a license plate. Like, no, don't let him force somebody into a car that they don't want to get into never anyway over the years multiple remains have been found and of course you know they get a little bit excited about oh have we finally found them but no none of them have ever matched them and in 2001 police reopened the case because of advancements in technology and the police interviewed at least 20 new witnesses who had reported sightings of the girls in the mall And at this point in 2001, they finally narrow it down to five suspects, but they don't say much about it and they don't say who it is, nothing. They give no information except we can say that the girls were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one person involved. Well, there would have had to have been because there was three of them. Right. But that's all they're saying. So it's. Now, it's 1974 to 2001. You're 16. No, that's more than 16 years. I cannot do math. (laughs) 
27 <laughs> years out and you're all you you can't say who they've been seen with not you, you're just saying we know they were seen with one person and possibly more i mean that's all you're giving us after you reopen oh a case after that long no wonder the family was rogue right so during this revival of the case in 2001 another witness who was a security guard at the mall during that time said that he saw the three girls in a pickup truck with a young man who was another security guard at the shopping center at approximately 11.30 p.m. that night. And he had approached the other security guard, and they exchanged some words for some unknown reason. He doesn't remember, I guess, what they were arguing about or talking about. And he had noticed the girls in the front seat. But they apparently were comfortable talking, laughing, and seemed to be in the vehicle willingly. So... He didn't, you know, take any – he wasn't concerned about it because he figured they're friends of his or he knows them or family because they, they were in there and they were fine. So this security guard that had stated that was located and identified by police, but he maintained that he did not have the girls in the truck that night. And that tip was actually given to police a few days after the disappearances of the girls, but the authorities did not investigate it until 2001. Oh, my. So that security guard told them that he saw the girls in a car, but they never looked into it until 20-something years later. <laughs> that hmm. security guard's like, mm, nope, I didn't have any girls in my car 20-something years ago. What? Okay. Sketch on the police's yes. And right. So once again, the investigation goes cold, but it's still open. And authorities just believe the girls left the mall with someone that they know and were murdered afterward. But they have literally no idea what happened to them. So these three girls go to the mall to go shopping and are just never seen again. So <clears throat> Rusty and Deborah. So Rusty and Deborah are... Um, Rachel's sister, sister and brother. They spent years digging through leads, bonding over their sister's disappearance. And in 1999, Rust Rusty had contacted a different private investigator after the other one died, <laughs> um, whose name was Dan James, who was familiar with the case and had been following it since 1975. And he had offered to help them for free because he had actually... He had already had his own theories on what happened in his head, and he was oh. more than willing to start investigating for them. So Rusty and James both believe witnesses that say that he saw the girls within days of the disappearances at gas stations and other stores. So, so many tips came in, and people were saying they saw him here, they saw him there, and it's just too many to like name all of those. So the initial ones that I named were just ones that were specifically always reported in um news stories and whatnot but they had had tons that said they saw them in different places but you know people say that or call in all the time but this investigator and her brother believe that they were seen at these gas stations and other stores after and they believe that renee and julie are both dead but that rachel is still alive and out there and whoever has her is keeping her from visiting the fort worth area why do they believe that? Your guess is as good as mine. They they don't ever really give any. They, hmm. they say, so 
The investigator says that he has several claims from credible witnesses that have reported seeing Rachel in the Fort Worth area around Christmas of 1998, but neither the investigator or Rusty, the brother, will give any evidence as to why they believe this. They just they just say that this is what they believe and because they heard people saw the girls, they heard that his one his sister was seen in 1998 and so that's all that we have to go on. They won't give us any other evidence. So, I don't I don't know how to how to even believe it's convenient that the it was Rachel's brother, right? That's yes. pursuing this. It's mm-hmm. convenient that the one who was paying the private investigator, the family member, that's the one that ends up being still alive. So it's like, you can't quit paying me to look for her because she's the only one alive. Right. Sketch. Yes. And yeah, I mean, and what's he supposed to do? Okay, he's telling me my sister's still alive. You know, like, are you going to give up if somebody's telling you your sister's still alive? Right, exactly. So through all all of this, Rusty and Deborah end up growing apart. Um, Fran, who is Rachel's mom, basically blames that investigator because she says that he's basically poisoned Rusty's mind um, and he believes all these things that the investigator says and is starting to question his own family and whatnot. And so they really kind of all grow apart. Rusty and his mom don't speak for several years. Rusty believes that someone they know had something to do with the disappearance and several people started to think that Deborah was involved or knew more than she was saying. And they even go as far as to say that she wrote the letter to Tommy. The sister wrote it. Hmm. Which, I mean, possible. You know. It did get there quick. Right. It got there quick. In an article that was published in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, many members of all of the families combined, because there's now like three different families that have missing children in this case, basically call out Deborah to take a polygraph in this article. And in 2009, she does say that she, she got actually on web sleuths. Mm. <laughs> posted okay. on there. Welcome to the club, girl. Welcome to the Websleuths Club. Um, she went on there and posted that she had, in fact, taken and passed two polygraphs, including one with the FBI. And Deborah thinks it's possible that substance abuse also had a hand in Rusty's beliefs in the case. So, substance abuse mixed with this private investigator just feeding him what he kind of needed to hear. So, she doesn't really blame Rusty for going down this path, but I mean, it's your brother and you're not really going to talk to somebody who thinks that you had something to do with your sister's disappearance and possible death. But yeah. So anyway, over time though, Rusty has come around and mended his relationships with his mother. He believes now that they are all most likely dead and is almost embarrassed about his former theories. Rachel's mom Fran, who is now in her 80s, puts three angels in her lawn every Christmas time to symbolize the missing girls. Most of the family members and all the families have, you know, their lives have just gone on. The Wilsons, which is Renee's family, never gave up looking for her. However, her mother passed away in 2015 without having any closure. And Julie's mom, Rayanne, she had a really rough time after that. Um, the disappearance, including losing her job and being just unreliable for her children and having multiple breakdowns. 
She was harassed by pranksters, including one that called her decades after Julie's disappearance, claiming to be Julie. And Rayanne, Julie's mom, actually met with this woman and found out through a DNA test that she was lying the whole time and she was not her daughter, which could you imagine? No. In their right mind would do that and call up some woman who's been missing her daughter for decades and be like, I'm her. I'm Julie. I'm your daughter. Just to, like, who messes with somebody that way? And her mom also died in 2013 without any, any answers. So we are, again, once again, at a loss for these families and to where these children are or they're now grownups because <laughs> they're like in their fifties now. Right. And there's lots of age progression photos of these girls online. I'm going to actually post them when this um, story comes out uh, because it's very interesting to see those age progression photos. But anyway, again, just no answers for these families and these girls that just disappear from a mall. Right before Christmas, 20-something years ago. Yeah. Or, no, now it's not even. It's a really long time ago, Christine. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, I can't – to me, that is 20-something years ago, and we're – like, it's not. It's 26 no. plus 20. It's 46 Are you 20-something years, years old? It's 46 <laughs> years ago, you guys. I – to me, the 70s is only 20-something years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever I'll ever catch up with this time. <laughs> That's really anyway. sad. Those poor families. Where are these kids? I right. You know, and this is why we have surveillance cameras yes. in parking lots and shopping centers. Yeah, because yeah. of them. Yeah, exactly. Because I bet you know. Yeah, because you can't rely on people's memories of things or what they saw or what they think they saw because you could give a description of a girl and be like, oh, yeah, I saw a girl that looked like that, sure, in that car or getting forced, you know, because your mind starts to think, too, that that's what you saw or you saw that specific person. I feel like, you know, yeah. you just want to be there to help and you're not meaning like to lie. But There's three girls. And so it is different to say, like, I may have seen one of the girls independently, but like, if you saw three girls that match this wide range of ages, right? You know, because you don't typically see a 17 year old and 14 year old and nine year old. I mean, I guess if they were all sisters, but like, that's a very, I would remember, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, not 40 some years later, but I would remember at the time. Right. Yeah. And there are people that say they remember seeing um, the girls in the mall in general because they remember specifically, I believe it was Renee's shirt, whatever she was wearing had a saying on it. I can't remember what it said, but they remember her specific shirt and seeing her. But again, it was just like we saw them in the mall. So it was really not. Yeah. Okay. So they made it to the mall. They were in the mall, but it really didn't help the investigation any to know that. Right. It was just with time frames it could maybe, but. Right. But in terms of like who was the last person they you saw them with, well, it didn't didn't help them in that way. So yeah. So I guess if anybody has any information, they can contact the Fort Worth Police Department at eight one seven four six nine eight four seven seven. But it's been a long time, you know, only like ten years. <laughs> and don't throw crappy tips. Yeah, please <laughs> don't give them don't give them false hope. Oh, but anyway. That's all I got. 
for you. I liked it. Yeah, guys, go to them all in groups because that's safer, except when it's not. <laughs> right. True. <laughs> and they should put grocery stores in malls. Oh, yes. Is this your next <laughs> business model? <laughs> it should be. Yeah. Malls are non-existent anymore anyway. No, very true. That is true. But we could bring them back with grocery stores. Mm-hmm. I'd go to the mall if there was a grocery store in it because I don't like the mall. But if I could get something else done while you were grabbing just go a bra from Victoria's Secrets. Oh, good. True story. See? <laughs> Putting it in the bank. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting us. If you like what you're hearing, we would love to get a five-star review from you on Apple. Um, you can also review us on Facebook, too which is a great little thing because it posts on our page and we really love that. Um, click subscribe. Come find us on Facebook, Instagram. You can always send us an email at crimesandclosets at gmail.com. You can go to our website, crimesandclosets.com. And remember, the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closet. Hey guys, this is Beth here at Crimes and Closets. We here in the closet love a good girl gang. We also love a new and creative podcast. So let me tell you about Crime and Roses. This podcast gives you a rundown of the latest and greatest bachelor drama mixed with a true crime story. So if you are a member of the True Crime Fan Club and Bachelor Nation, check out friends Megan and Danielle on a platform of your choice. Just search for Crime and Roses, hit subscribe, and tell them Christy and Beth sent you. And don't forget to check us out every Monday for a new episode. We'll see you in the closet. Hi there. I'm Megan. And I'm Danielle. And we are Crime and Roses. We are a true crime and bachelor franchise recap podcast. Yeah, we're both. We are two Georgia attorneys watching and recapping all things bachelor just for you. So we're talking Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, Winter Games, Summer Games, all the games. Basically any show that ABC comes up with and forces us to watch. And then we'll release a true crime episode connected to what we've seen on the show that week. So if you don't like true crime, we have The Bachelor. And if you don't like The Bachelor, we have true crime. And if you don't like either, we're probably not the podcast for you. And that's okay. So if you're into one of those things, both of those things, come check us out as we combine our two favorite things into one-stop listening shop for you. So find us on your favorite podcatcher and on social media at Crime and Roses and email us at crimeandroses at gmail.com. Bye. Love you. Mean it.